Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What's up, everybody? We have Mr. Ian Clem back with us today. Uh, Ian, this is a special episode, I think, because for a couple of reasons. This one's, I, I feel just this near and dear to my heart. One, your first episode back since we've crossed 100 episodes, so that's pretty neat. Two, we are going to be discussing barrels. Now, you gave us a little bit of a preview when we were in some of our long-range podcasts. You know, I think that last one that you uh, were at was the, well, we were talking about F-Class and ELR, and you talked about barrel tuning, so that's, you know, that's one thing in and of itself, but barrels, we're here actually podcasting from probably the barrel belt, I've heard it. Describe. Oh, yeah, Barrel Mecca. This yeah. is the epicenter for now, barrels. Can you even just go into that real quickly? So we're in Wisconsin, and barrel makers abound here. Yeah, I, so I feel really a little bit uh, like a faker because I'm here being some subject matter expert on barrels, and we live in a place where you, like, you turn over a rock and there's going to be a barrel maker. Like <laughs> If you say, oh, I know about barrels, you should be able to make a barrel from play-doh and cornstarch and a pipe cleaner and stuff like that um and if you can't then you should get out of wisconsin something like that that. (laughs) but no i think um there were a couple really influential leaders in uh barrel manufacturing back in the day guys like boots obermeyer you might have heard of that name or john krieger Mm -hmm. uh, oh yeah Mm -hmm. yep so you know they have these apprentices that they take in and they pass a lot of knowledge and, you know, maybe some old uh, gun drill machines or rifling machines come up for auction. They're hard to find. They're over 100 years old, hmm. but now they're available. Maybe one of these apprentices decides to go out on their own and start their own shop and, and kind of forge their own path with what they've learned. So I have a feeling that's kind of why you see so many barrel manufacturers in Wisconsin. Right. Is because there was a really good knowledge base and, and these pioneers weren't you know, afraid to share that knowledge. And now the industry demand is such that there's room for a bunch of makers and they're all doing well. So, yeah. And when it comes to barrels, the, uh, it's, it's kind of funny as you were talking about that too, I was, I was thinking, well, we're pretty good at making barrels. We're pretty good at making beer here in Wisconsin, but barrels, beer, cheese, brats, brats, the three B's, the three B's. Yeah. Those are covered at least. But yeah, when it comes to barrels, there's, there's a lot, there in something that visually looks so simple. I mean, it's just kind of a bar with a hole in it. Yeah. But Ian, I guess one thing that I wanted to know, and this is a classic question. I remember when I was in sports, people used to ask the coach like, well, coach, what's the most important muscle to work out? And usually that was kind of like that, that meant, which, when should I be trying and when can I slough off? <laughs> is this going to be on the test? <laughs> right. So, so then of course the coach was like, all of them get back to work. But I do wonder sometimes the most important part of a rifle, and you we're talking about a lot of precision stuff here. That's kind of your arena. Does it come down to when you're looking at your F class guns, your ELR guns, your precision guns? Is the barrel the most important part? It is. I'm going to say it is. Yeah. It seems like a simple part, and it's easy to oversimplify it. Like you said, what is it? It's a tube with a hole running through the middle. But it's it it's what gives the word rifle its name. You know that's that's right. why oh, rifles yeah, shoot well, right? So you talk to some kind of old salts in the precision game, and you say, well, what's what's important? 
And have you guys ever heard of this phrase called the three Bs? We're talking about beer, brats, and barrels. Yeah, I, yes, thought, exactly. I, thought we, <laughs> I thought we covered we this covered about that 30 already. seconds ago. It's actually a thing, a real thing, and okay. it's barrels, bullets, and betting. Uh, hmm. As you probably heard hmm. of, you know, mm-hmm. betting. But action isn't in there. You know, stock isn't in there. Those things, I don't want to minimalize those things because, yeah, it takes, you know, a village to raise a rifle or whatever. But it does. That's what they say. Yeah. That's what they say. Um, the, the, the last <laughs> thing to touch the projectile, and, and that's ultimately determining your precision, is the barrel. So I, I really put a lot of stock in barrels. The action, it's kind of fun to talk about actions. And from a mechanical engineer standpoint, I like the way they work and taking them apart and everything. But not a, as big a contributor to overall precision as a barrel. A stock, a great orthopedic fit makes it fun to use and um, feel good. And, and you have a good uh, relationship with that rifle through the stock, but not as heavy a contributor for precision as a barrel. Right. Hmm. Yeah, it's going to promote accuracy, right? Yeah. If it fits you correctly, but it's not actually making the rifle accurate. It promotes it promotes more of like the uh, I think we've discussed in the past. There's a difference between shooter accuracy and how accurate the actual exactly. gun itself is. Like if yeah. if put guns, it in a vice, if guns could contr- go off without a human touching anything, they would probably be a lot more accurate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when it comes to these things, even just on the table here right now, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see it. If you're listening right now then you can't, but we'll describe it. There are many different kinds of barrels just here on the table and many that we don't even have here on the table. And, uh, I mean, Mark and I were going through this when we were trying to consider, like, yeah, is this a full-on podcast topic or not? And as we brought up the differences to each other, we were like, holy smokes, this is this is definitely a podcast topic because we have uh, long barrels and short barrels. We have stainless barrels and regular steel barrels. We have There's actually a double barrel here in front of us, which is incredible. Hexagonal barrels. We have fluting, not fluted. We have barrel uh, uh, muzzle devices, um, big thick bowl barrels, and little thin skinny yeah. sendero barrels, and things like that. And contours, finishes, carbon fiber, twist geez. rates. Oh, twist rates is another big one. Yeah, types of twists. They get, I mean, because you have your regular rifling, but then sometimes there's his hexagonal. There's chrome lining. There's yeah. not lined. There's different oh, man. Different types uh, or different ways to. To rifle the barrel itself, you got yeah, button. That's probably the one I'm most familiar with. Yeah, yeah. button was it? Is it gouge or cut? Yeah. So there's, uh, let's see, four major types. There's single point cut. There's broached, which is actually using like multiple points per pass to cut rifling. Okay. There's hammer forged. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, like totally your AR-15s and whatnot. You have a lot of hammer-forged barrels. A lot barrels. of European barrel manufacturers are hammer-forged, old mm-hmm. process. And then button rifling. So some people think button rifling and broached are the same because when they picture a button, like a shirt button, it's this flat disc, and they think, well, yeah, it's probably a cross-section of rifling, and they just sort of force it through the barrel and create rifling. It's a little bit different than that. So we can get into kind of do an overview of all four of those yeah, real quick. Yeah, that's a good place to start, seems all like All right, it. so button rifling, we'll start there. Like you said, it's where the gun gets its name, is where we call rifle. Exactly. Rifling. That's, that's, right. that's kind of where the magic happens, is the rifling on the, on the inside there. So button rifling, you take a bar of steel and you drill a hole, and even that, like that deserves a couple of sentences because drilling a 30-inch long hole, a quarter-inch in diameter... Hole. 
you guys have ever drilled a hole and, and maybe it's through like a six by six, you're building a deck or something and you've got a long bit, you've got an eight inch bit and it comes out like an eighth of an inch or a quarter inch off Cause of it kind of gets a little wobbly it sometimes does, right. you have this big long drill bit that yeah. has some flex to it and takes whatnot. a, takes a detour. Yeah. So how do they do it? 30 inches long. Well, it's, have you guys ever heard of something called a spoon drill? It's like this ancient tool that looks almost like a spoon instead of a regular drill bit. I have not. Okay. Um, you could kind of picture it. Is it's it like, the one that has a, it, does it have a little point on it and then it comes back and it goes out to a big? No, that's a modern tool. That's like oh, a okay. Forstner bit. Um, okay. I don't know enough about that. Yeah. Like so picture, picture like this spoon, but it's sharp on the edges. And before power drills, you know, they would hand okay. crank this thing and it would dig out a hole in like a timber when you're building a ship. Oh, I think I've seen maybe one. Yeah. 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 yeah primitive. So picture something like that, only instead of like normal iron or steel, it's made out of modern materials. Um, so it'd be like tungsten carbide, something really, really hard. But it's got that same profile where like, you know, maybe 110 degrees of it is missing. It's like this scoop almost. Okay. And they turn the barrel usually and keep that bit straight. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then they have these bushings around the bit that keep it from wobbling, keep it really, really straight as it goes in. Yeah. But then the key is they turn the barrel like 3,000 RPMs really fast. Wow. And then they only drill in about one inch per minute to make this hole. So super slow. They're pumping coolant through that long bit. All the chips and the the, um, used up coolant is coming through that 100 degree void in the top of the drill bit to okay. excavate. So the barrel never heats up. You don't have a lot of tool pressure on that bit. You're not really forcing it too hard so it doesn't want to bend or take a detour. So And it, all that debris is kind of getting pushed back out of the way then. So it's not you know, like you don't have to like up retrieve clean and then peck again like a normal twist bit. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um and, and it comes out on the other side 30 inches later, you know, half hour 40 minutes later, like maybe one or two thousandths off axis. So super straight. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine I I would imagine that it's almost easier for let's say a fifty cal versus like a twenty two or seventeen. Seventeen. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. Itty that, bitty. That's got to be a th- yeah. Because I mean that drill bit ex- explanation or parallel that you made. I always screw stuff up with little tiny thin yeah. drill bits. The big ones are easy. Yeah. Because it's like I right, just take a big thing and just zerp right through because yep. the, the bit doesn't flex much. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so now we've got a hole, but, you know, the surface that that bit makes is not ideal. Um, it's usually 5,000 undersized for the bore diameter. The bore diameter is the diameter from, like, a land of the of the final rifling to another land. Mm-hmm. So now we have to ream it. So we go in and we make a better surface finish with a reamer that takes out just a little bit more steel. So it's taking some of those radial tool marks out that the drill left mm, okay. and creating a little bit bigger size, getting ready for that rifling process. And that reamer, isn't it specific to a cartridge or at least a bullet? A bore, yeah, a, bore. a okay. caliber size, okay. yeah. And then some some places take the extra step of honing. They actually have a, a hone that'll go in and, and uh, through an abrasive process rather than cutting, it'll, you know, take that last five ten thousandths off or something, get it really ultra smooth. Hmm. Uh, when we get to hammer forge process, we'll talk about honing because it's more important to have a good surface finish on a hammer forge barrel. Hmm. But now you've got this bore size that's to shape, 
And so for button rifling, the button, I wish I had a picture here. I don't know if you printed one out, Mark. But No, I don't have one. Okay. I got a description of it, but you can probably yeah. do that. So it's it's maybe like a three-quarter inch long tungsten carbide yep. piece of metal that has in relief the rifling pattern on it. Yep. And Does it uh, look kind of like a dowel almost? Ian's reading my notes. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> short. It's, it's not very big. It's oh, like okay. that big. And we're preparing ourselves to either push this thing through this hole we just made or pull it through. Mm -hmm. So a big process in keeping that button from getting stuck is choosing the right lubricant, something that doesn't break down under a lot of pressure. And by a lot of pressure, I mean, I think you're going to need like 10,000 PSI to push this thing through, mm -hmm. the steel. That's significant. <laughs> yeah. But the weird thing about button rifling is you're not cutting steel. You're Yeah, you're not you're removing any material. No. You're just pushing it pushing out of the way. It. Yeah, you're displacing it i guess so huh. you're taking steel that you know was there and pushing it off to the sides and and um you know i think it's it's high pressure but it induces a lot of stress right. in the steel so um does it make the does it make and this is just me guessing about things does it make where it pushed it out and where you have the rifling grooves harder than the part that they're not pushing against. I think there is work hardening that goes on. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'd think, especially because you have, like, grains of yeah. the steel that are getting compressed in those yep. areas. I mean, there has to be work hardening for, from that violent of a process. But so now you've forced this button through, and the button, let's say you're pushing it through. You've got this high tensile strength steel rod that's pushing the button through. You're actually twisting that at a specific twist rate to impart, you know, the right, um, twist rate, helical twist rate. Oh, MC right Ryan thing. appears to have brought something up. Is that a bit like what? Yeah, there's a button. Look yeah, so thing. if we take a look at that uh, on YouTube, folks can see uh, what they kind of look like. And you see there's sort of a, a lead in and a lead out. It's almost like a football shape. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it is. Yeah, and that's to that's to actually impress rather than to gouge or cut or remove material. Oh, okay. Makes yeah. sense. Makes sense. Thanks, Ryan. And then is that going straight it's just being pushed straight through, or is or it pulled. turning at the same time? Pushed or pulled, but... Yeah, they can do either one. Um, some people say, hey, you're supposed to pull it because, uh, sort of like um, those Japanese pull saws, they say they stay straight. Mm -hmm. Rather, if you're going to push it, a mm -hmm. saw, a push saw, sometimes it'll want to buckle. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people say, hey, yeah, let's pull it, but if you pull, then you have to make sure that you don't break the rod that's pulling it. Or you don't yeah. accidentally detach the button okay. in the middle of your barrel. If yeah. you push it, they don't even have to be attached. You can just put the button in, put your pusher, and then push it all the way through, and you're done. Right. So it's a little bit more user-friendly from a manufacturing standpoint to push. Okay. But I think the onus is on the manufacturer to have really tight-fitting bushings on that rod so the rod, the pushing rod itself, doesn't, like, buckle or get yeah. off-center. You can picture that button wanting to tilt every once in a while, and yeah. that can create inconsistencies in the bore size. It's like a rear-wheel drive car versus front-wheel drive car. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Okay, so that's button rifling. There's a couple more things to talk about in terms of that stress that we just induced when making that rifling pattern. Uh, like you were saying, some of the steel kind of compresses. Some of it, you know, it's it's like this torture test where uh, the steel is now in a pre-stress pre condition. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, you haven't even contoured the barrel blank yet. So oh, okay. what happens when you start removing steel from the outside of the barrel with all this internal stress on the bore? Mm -hmm. It's going to take a bend or the mouth is going to flare out at the end. Oh. Or as those stresses get relieved, you're removing some of the material. The stresses okay. relieve and then they get... 
these are all these are all things that I'm sure relate back to some of the stuff that you discussed earlier with like barrel tuning and things like that, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, a straight barrel is good. People want straight barrels. You oh, try well, to yeah. get as straight as possible. Yeah. So they go through this uh, stress relieving process. You've probably heard about like tri- cryogenically freezing mm-hmm. barrels or or people or people <laughs> for future use. Yeah. <laughs> I got, um, I got big plans for that. <laughs> <laughs> so they go through a stress-relieving process. Usually it's a, it's a high-temp process. Uh, I forget exactly what the temperature is. But that sort of lets the steel relax. Those stresses um, get removed. Now you're free to contour the outside of it, hmm. thread it, chamber it, do all those, all those kind of things. So that's button rifling. Hammer forging is way different. So with hammer forging, see if you can find a picture, Ryan, of like a, uh, a hammer forging machine. Hopefully he'll find one, but are, there are these four big hammers that are opposite each other, mm-hmm. and they strike this piece of steel millions of times per barrel. And oh, you, you cut the blank, you cut the blank of steel about two-thirds of what the final length is going to be. There's that much steel that gets stretched and oh, squeezed. Oh, gets stretched from getting oh, smushed. Oh, yeah. Pounded it. Yeah. Oh, so you're going to cut this thing about 60% of you know what the final length is. You're going to put it through the, well, first you're going to drill, like we talked about before, but this time you're going to drill bigger than you want your final bore size to be. Right, because it's oh, going to get constricted gonna... down. Yep, yep. Look at that thing. Oh, there we go. Amazing. Yep. Oh, my gosh. It looks like a something out of Star Wars. Yeah. So uh, the, the really good ones these days, I mean, these things have been around for a long time, but the really good ones... They're CNC controlled, and they can actually, no, not only can they form the rifling around um, what's called a mandrel on the inside, mm-hmm. but they can actually form the contour of the outside of the barrel as they're doing that. Oh, wow. So you don't have to cut that contour later. Because I'm sure when you cut, it removes some strength, potentially. I was going to say, because you're removing, like you're not, I guess other than, you're never, are you never losing material in this process? Well, technically, by the time it gets onto a, a rifle, you are losing some material because you know you've got to cut the tenon and thread it and stuff like that. Sure. But from a from a like a waste or um, recycling ratio yield type perspective from a manufacturing environment, this is pretty cool because yeah, you can you can uh, basically plan for exactly almost exactly how much steel you're going to need for the finished product, and then form it through that hammer forging process. Mm-hmm. And you end up with something in theory that's super strong because you've you've worked hard beat it, it into yeah just like being and super hard. <laughs> yep. So what's interesting about hammer forging is you're not you don't get a chance to influence the how perfect the rifling geometry is uh, after the fact. It's basically hard and hammer forged, so you need to start out with a really good surface finish on the ID of that hole before you start hitting it. Okay. And then a really good surface finish on your mandrel itself. The mandrel is, I don't know, maybe two or three inches long and it traverses down the barrel as the, it stays, it stays kind of in plane with the hammers Mm -hmm. and the barrel actually traverses down the machine. So the mandrel is only ever occupying a couple inches of the barrel right underneath the hammers and the whole barrel gets gets rifled, you know, as that mandrel is is being turned by by like a separate motor on the outside. Oh, yeah! Wow. So it almost has to. You're, it's almost like screwing its way in, almost like or tapping its way in. Yeah. In so a way. the like if a, you picture it, the machine is big and heavy, and it stays put. The barrel is making its way through the machine. The mandrel is sort of staying in one spot. The hammers are staying in one spot, but the mandrel is rotating a little bit as the barrel 
goes past it. So that's how you get your twist rate. Okay. In fact, they can even hammer forge the chamber portion of a barrel now. Hmm. I've got one rifle at home that has a 6.5 Swede that has a hammer forged chamber. And what's um, significant about that? Well, it's I think they can guarantee a really coaxial alignment between that chamber and the bore because essentially it's made with tooling in one step. So you're not rifling the barrel and then putting it on a lathe and trying to indicate it as best you can so that you can mm. come in with a separate tool and cut a chamber. It's all kind of one setup, one tool, guaranteed coaxial alignment. Cool. So that's that's like a benefit. So that's hammer forging. Sometimes you'll see like a, a styre hammer forged barrel that has like these hammer marks on the outside that are kind of like in a twisted pattern. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever seen that. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Or like a Ruger 1022. Ruger's hammer forging some barrels now. Okay. And you can get that same sort of like neat twisted pattern on the outside. Hmm. Is uh, that almost like when you get a Japanese knife and it has those like... <laughs> those little hammer marks on like hammer marks That's on probably it. a little bit more <laughs> legit uh, than, than this. This is just like an artifact of like... The process, but people thought it looked kind of neat, so they're like, no, 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 don't polish that off, leave that okay. on there. Gotcha, got yeah. it. Interesting. Um, so that's hammer forging. Now, broaching broaching is real common with like pistol barrels simply because the tool is is really big. We've been talking about these small buttons or, or short mandrels. Now, picture this tool that's maybe two feet long for a four inch pistol barrel, hmm. and the reason why it has to be so long is it's got these cutting teeth on it that are incrementally bigger in diameter as you go up the tool. So each tooth might be responsible for shaving off one to two ten thousandths of an inch. Mm-hmm. So you need a lot of them. Oh, yeah. Um, and, they're, and, they're, and they're cemented. They're like carbide cutting teeth that are cemented to this rod in sort of this helical pattern that matches the twist rate that you want in your barrel. Hmm. So they like, they, they'll put a, um, a pistol barrel in a machine, hydraulic press again, and they'll force this brooch down through it. So one pass, you have a fully rifled barrel. Oh. Okay. But that's a cutting process, so you're shaving off a little bit of steel each time. That's pretty good in terms of not inducing stress um, because your tool pressure is a lot lower than like with a button that you're pushing through with 10,000 PSI. But still, anytime you cut metal, instead of forming it or embossing it, you end up with um, a little bit of a, like a burr. Right, um, or like so, a hard edge, or yeah, it's it's like uh, you know ninety nine percent of the steel will get cut as intended, and like one percent will actually get displaced off to the side instead of cut. The oh. sharper your tool, the smaller your burr, but still you end up with a little bit of a burr. So they have to do a secondary process, which is lapping mm-hmm. afterwards to get rid of that burr, smooth mm. it out. That's even a little bit. I mean, like yeah, I guess when you think about cutting with a knife, you're yeah, just, you're just separating. Something sure. with a really thin, yeah. You cut a piece of cheese. You look at that that block of cheese that you just cut really, really closely, and there'll probably be like a little burr of cheese, you know, oh, off to right. one side. It makes one hundred percent sense now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yep. <laughs> I actually fully get it. <laughs> so the last the last process, and that's probably you know the most common for guys that are really into precision and custom bolt gun builds and things like that, is single point cut rifling. And that's like broaching in that you're scraping off like one ten thousandth of steel per per cutter, but you only have one cutter. And it they're, you know, hand ground, they look like little hooks. Mm-hmm. Um and they'll be run through a bore uh, that's drilled to size and, and ream to size, and then they'll scrape 
um, while being rotated in the correct twist pattern, one ten thousandth of steel out of that bore, and then the whole barrel gets indexed. Like, let's say it's a four groove, it'll get indexed 90 degrees, mm-hmm. and the cutter will go back in and scrape the next groove in wow. the rifling, one ten thousandth of an inch. And you keep repeating that process until you have your final desired groove depth. That must take forever. It takes forever. It takes forever. Oh, you're paying um, for labor hours on that thing, I'm sure. Machine time, labor hours, hand lapping after the fact. But it's also very um, enabling from a customization standpoint. So, you know, a high-tech shop like Bartland, you know, here in Wisconsin, they can make a, a gain twist barrel with their CNC-controlled cutting machine. So gain twist is where you might start off one end of the barrel at uh, a one and eight twist, and you might end at the muzzle end at uh, a more aggressive twist or a faster twist like one and seven. Oh, How? I did not know that was a thing. That's Would a thing. You, are you so you're just tw- you're just finishing with a different a whole different tool then? No, that's the cool thing. No, it's the exact it's same one, cutter. Yeah, yeah. It's the exact same tool. Oh, so it's just made. Yeah, you know if you were to look at the barrel and watch it twist while the cutter is moving from one end to the other, Mm -hmm. the rate of twist would look like it's getting faster towards the end, even though the cutter is moving at the same linear velocity. Wild. That's crazy because when you think about, I guess the the natural question is why would somebody do that? Right. Mm -hmm. Because also, like, it, it seems like you're trying to, you know, obviously spin the bullet faster as it gets towards the end. Yep. But... What is that doing? Yeah, why, why would you? Why not just have that be the twist rate the whole time? Great questions. Yeah, so you don't want to start out necessarily at a really fast twist because maybe the transition from not twisting a projectile at all to twisting it seven uh, or one rotation in every seven inches is too abrupt of an acceleration, angular velocity acceleration for the bullet. Have you ever heard of bullets kind of coming apart mid-flight or blowing yeah, up? Or, sure. Yeah, and. Um, one of the reasons, one of the contributing factors to that is what that jacket experiences during its life in the, bo- in the bore. And right. so you can either be kind of nice to the jacket and ease it into a fast twist rate, or you can, you know, slap it across the face and say, nope, you're going to spin. Going zero to yeah, a million real fast. Right away. And anytime you, you know, try and overcome its rotational moment of inertia too fast, it can result in a little bit of deformation in the jacket and that Mm -hmm. deformation can eventually contribute to that jacket becoming unstable coming apart as it is it's experiencing some uh, centrifugal forces Mm -hmm. afterwards so you've kind of like abruptly started rotation of that of that jacket the jacket is relatively thin to begin with you're shooting high velocity cartridge that all contributes and maybe you're your rifling profile or your land profile is fairly abrupt as well, meaning it's fairly square and fairly deep. Mm-hmm. It engraves a little bit more than than um, it needs to into that jacket. You're going to compromise that jacket more so than if you'd sort of introduce it to that twist rate slowly. That's one reason to do a progressive or gain twist. The it other, makes sense. I mean, you've got being just nice like a super violent yeah. action being imparted on it like, all at once, Jim. I'll, and maybe this makes sense, maybe it doesn't, but like, I'll give you a car reference. Going zero to 60 in 10 seconds versus zero to 60 in one second. 
like what your body's going to experience. I prefer one. <laughs> I know you. I was just thinking that. the same reference, but I was like, people fight hard for that quicker zero to sixty time, man. Now we're just being well, all nice to these bullets. Well, here. if your if your goal is what do I want my muzzle velocity to be, and you don't really care how you get there, that's what we're playing with right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, I agree with you. Acceleration is fun. <laughs> Or like you ever see those uh, those zoomed in pictures of drag racing tires, and you watch the sidewall of the tire. Oh yeah, when they they're trying to transfer fold. all that torque right away. Yeah, yeah, they're like rippling and like collapsing on almost. Itself. They, they almost go completely flat. Yeah, it looks like. Yeah, so pretty harsh acceleration, rotational acceleration of that tire. Right. Same thing can happen to a bullet. I think that's one reason to do it. Another reason, and this is the reason I think most people sort of subscribe to, is you're sort of providing a, a progressive amount of back pressure and sealing on the bullet if you start to twist it a little bit faster as it goes down the, the bore. And what I mean is if you had just a consistent twist rate like most rifles do, you would engrave that rifling profile into the, into the bullet. And in a perfect world, you'd have a line-to-line fit now between your newly formed jacket mm-hmm. and the bore, and no gas would get by. Mm-hmm. But that assumption is idealistic, and what actually happens in reality is the land of that rifling profile might vary just a little bit in width. And so you've now you know, formed that shape onto the outside of the bullet, but there's peaks and valleys as it goes, and some expansion gases can kind of get by it as it's going down the barrel. And you don't want that because it's robbing you of velocity, but also it contributes to instability of the bullet sure. if you have gases go past it. Yeah, and that's just because it's imparting force Aside from the outside. force on the O-jive, yep, okay. yep, induces yaw and things like that. So what are ways that you can sort of ensure that that doesn't happen? Well, you can try to... You can try to lap and hone this final shape so that it gets a little bit tighter as it goes down the barrel. Then it's experiencing just a little bit more constriction, and you sort of add an insurance policy for gases to blow by. Hmm. Another another way to do it is to enter in some progressive rifling. It kind of does the same thing where it's it's uh, you've got these helical grooves on on the jacket of your uh, bullet as it's traveling down. And that helix is getting a little bit tighter and a little bit tighter. And as it does, it's sort of sealing off the side of that land bullet junction. It's hard to picture. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine in your head. But that's kind of what happens as it, as it goes down. So you know that to stabilize a certain bullet, you want to end at an eight twist. You know that, well, I have less jacket deformation if I can start a little bit slower than that, and I get the added benefit of a progressive seal as the bullet's traveling down the bore. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start at 9, I'm going to end at 8. You know, sometimes guys will order, hey, I want to start at 9 and 3 quarter and, and end oh, at 9 and a half. How are they even determining that? Are, yeah. they just, are they just saying, is that just numbers they plucked out of their bum? Or I think what? it is, and I think it's, you know, they had one barrel that shot really, really well at that, so they just okay. want to replicate it. Like, oh, this and is the magic not? ratio. The magic Fair ratio. Enough. And Bartlett's all too happy to say, yep, and they just type a number into their machine, and they, they get that. There so. you go. Well, and you get to be cool. You do get to be <laughs> cool because like, oh, you get no. to say, oh, no, it's not just, what, what twist rate is that? Oh, yeah. well, let me tell you. Yeah. How long do you have? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Hold on. I'm not done with twist rate. Go for it. I want to talk about. Slow versus fast, why yes. and and why yes and what's better and is faster just better, you know or yeah. d- depends on bullet weight. 
Of length. course, faster is better, Mark. That's what I'm trying to get to, Jim. Is I'm that? trying to bait. Wasn't always like <laughs> that. Ian into it. It wasn't always like that. I mean, it's like anything with science. You you sort of like bump heads a little bit and then come to a consensus over time. And you can't be so dogmatic that you that you can't say, well, actually, it's proven out that we thought you could overtwist a, a bullet, but now we know that you can't. So we'll get rid of that old wives' tale. But oh, wait a minute, is it that you actually can't necessarily overtwist? It's a bullet? super hard to over. Was the theory getting back to what we we're talking about before of just being like too violent of a rotational action on the bullet? Well, they thought that um, they we thought decades ago that. Uh, if you spun a bullet too fast, especially like a lighter weight bullet, yep. Or I think I think it it came from bullet manufacturing processes that didn't yield as homogeneous a cross section as they do now. So in other words, okay, um, they mm-hmm. haven't figured out a way to um, make sure that the jacket thickness is exact all the way around a bullet. Okay. So now it's the center of gravity isn't exactly on the axis of the projectile. It's like oh okay, a tiny bit to one side or the other. Yeah, well, it'd be like throwing a football where it had a slight weight on one end. It would mm-hmm. kind of. Or why do auto mechanics spend so much time balancing your tires? You know, yeah, by yeah, adding okay. weights here and there. Well, same same reason. So, I think some people saw some instability from high angular velocity exterior ballistics. So they thought, well, I must be overstabilizing my bullet. When in in truth, it was probably the manufacturing techniques of bullet manufacturers just catching up. Um, to get rid of a lot of those inconsistencies, to get rid of voids and kind of a, a kind of a classic. It's not me, it's you. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. The other, the other kind of um, thing that was driving people to uh, use slower twist rates was they thought, well, if I only need a one in twelve twist to stabilize this eighty grain six mm bullet. I don't want to twist it any faster than that because if I do, I'll be sacrificing velocity. And I can hmm. I can forgive that line of thinking because it, it makes sense. It's intuitive, right? You're thinking, well, due to dra- drag, less, yeah, like, less force is being used to just push the bullet forward as is being used to twist it. Yep. So you're kind of giving up some to get a little elsewhere. Yep. And anytime you, I mean, let's be honest, rifling is an impediment to forward motion. Um, so okay. you're you're increasing that component of the force that's that's resisting that forward motion. Well, it turns out through empirical testing that although there is a relationship there, it's tiny. It's almost not hmm. worth considering. Okay, like uh, you you'll sacrifice two feet per second if you go. You know. Oh, that's small. Yeah, super small, negligible, basically. Huh. So. It's it's nice from a consumer from a sh- shooting perspective because I don't have to think that I'm making this big trade off, you know. Right. So like for you building a new rifle and you're like, man, you know, I could do a I could do a ten twist or I could do a nine twist. I'm always going to sort of recommend the nine because bullet manufacturers are always making a little bit longer, a little bit higher mm-hmm. BC bullets, and that'll p- sort of pad your your ability to stabilize something that comes out later that's a little bit longer that needs a faster twist rate and you won't be sacrificing exterior ballistics in the in the short term okay. with the today's bullets does it with a faster twist rate twist rate does it become a more versatile barrel in that like let's say you're you're shooting a cartridge where maybe you can shoot 165s 180s and 200 grainers 100% Hundred percent. My my competition three hundred eights are a good example of that. Um, right now, I'm all ten twist because I need it for these really long two hundred two hundred and ten grain bullets okay. for a three hundred eight. 
but there's these mid-range matches where like 155s might really shine because they're just a really good bullet. Mm -hmm. Well, I can shoot those as accurately in my 10 twists as I can in a 13 twist, the original twist for a 155, okay. but hmm. I can't do the, the converse isn't true. Yeah, you're that's where you yourself. really run into trouble with twist rates is if your if your twist rate is too slow for a big a bigger right? Too slow for a bigger bullet. You need a faster twist rate for bigger bullets. Yeah. Heavier bullets, yeah. I should say. Not yeah. necessarily bigger. And but. like back in the sixties and seventies, you know, if someone were to um have a like a two forty three or six mm Remington, talked about this a couple times in previous uh podcasts, manufacturers made the mistake of twisting too slow. Yeah. Right. And they thought, well, people are going to use a two forty three as a long-range prairie dog rifle, and they're just going to be shooting 70-grain bullets. Well, not so much. You know, people want to shoot 95s and mm -hmm. use it for deer hunting and dual purpose. Now you've just hamstrung yourself because you've got this really slow 1 in 12 twist for your two forty three, and it can only shoot 65-grain bullets ever. Yeah. And people say, you know, they try the 90s, 95s, and they don't shoot well, and they think, well, the cartridge is bad. So they write it off. Yeah. Right. They, yeah. Put this on a shelf, sell it to some schmuck. Yeah, this rifle doesn't shoot. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Well, I know, and I'm sure people are completely tired of hearing about it, but my old 300 Wisdom, it'll eat 165s, it'll eat 180s, and then I've tried 200 grainers, and it just falls apart. Yeah. Interesting. And I think I think the Mark, Europeans I'm the only kinda... person who's sick of hearing about your 300 Wisdom. Everybody else loves it. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, we egg them on a little bit because we want to hear more. We do. We do. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, the Europeans, like uh, the Scandinavians, using the 6.5 Swede for moose and stuff like that. They're shooting, they, for a long time, they've been shooting these really long for caliber, you know, 160-grain round noses. But they have the twist that can stabilize that bullet. Yeah. Whereas in the States, for the longest time, velocity was king. And so we're thinking, okay, light bullets shooting really fast. That'll make the, the rifle flat. And it does for the first 300 yards, you know. But we know better now and we want to shoot further now. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. How about, um, we'll stay inside the rifle here for a bit longer. How about like um, uh, linings? So, I, you know, some of the AR 15s, you see this uh, chrome lining or you see uh, nitride, whatnots. And, um, you know, sometimes people say, well, you get like a stainless barrel and it won't last quite as long or for as many rounds as will like a chrome lined barrel because I think chrome is like super hard or it something. Is, yeah. You know, and then you have the regular nitrided barrel, which is kind of in between the two as far as how long it lasts. But stainless seems to be a little bit more accurate, some people say, than the chrome lining because it's a little bit softer. It grips the bullet or something like that better, whereas chrome... I don't know. What, what do you think about all those things? So, yeah, you're on the right track. Basically, the chrome is super hard, so it res resists wear. So you get longer barrel life. But as with everything in life, there's no free lunch. The trade-off is precision okay mm. and the reason why is because even though people are pretty good at depositing chrome onto steel it's still it doesn't have the same dimensional stability as just a plain steel barrel okay so yeah. we've just cut rifled this barrel and we've hand lapped it and it's super super consistent now we're going to deposit this chrome onto it and we've planned for a certain thickness, but sometimes that thickness is a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. Yeah. That's why I usually take, I've heard people say, I'm not an expert on this, but I've heard people say like um, a quarter minute deficit in, in available mechanical precision for a hmm. lined barrel versus unlined barrel. And so if you want to shoot, if you want to sustain high rates of fire for whatever reason, 
maybe that's a good trade. Maybe that's worth right. it for you. Yeah. You know, it all depends on your philosophy of use. If like that isn't AK, volume. The old AK-47. Volume versus accuracy, or as one person wrote in at, uh, to us. Uh, many years ago. Many years ago. The more rounds you got, the less aim it take. <laughs> po- sure. Poetic. Yep. Yep. <laughs> that was a real quote. Uh, that, that, yeah, that we happened. got tagged in that on Instagram. Okay. The picture was. I respect that move. Yeah. Uh, intriguing. Inspiring. Okay. But something like melaniting or um, nitriding, uh, those processes, for one, they add less thickness. Mm-hmm. They still afford surface hardening, which mm-hmm. is what we're trying to get to Aren't get they like actually life. a corrosion. Well, that's almost like a secondary benefit. Okay. It's uh, anti-corrosion, but we've all seen like chrome bumpers that are still, you know, subject to a little bit of oxidation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, the main benefit, though, is barrel life. So okay. it makes a lot of sense when you start talking about machine gun barrels you right. know, within yeah. our armed forces. Is mm-hmm. it not necessarily, then, the, the demotion and accuracy, is demotion a word, maybe? Reduction. Reduction and accuracy isn't necessarily a direct result of how hard chrome is, but a little bit more of what you're talking about, how it has some more inconsistencies. Dimensional stability, yep. Okay. Yeah. I always thought of like, uh, I always thought of it almost as the chrome was so hard that the bullet was, it was mm. almost like, almost like a softer stainless or a softer steel barrel would be just gripping the bullet a little bit more. The bullet would be kind oh. of like oozing through it a little bit better <laughs> so it would stay more mm-hmm. straight or something. I don't know. That's that that was always my impression, but I just that was completely made up, you know. Yeah. Well, you might be onto something, but <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to you don't okay. need to make so, me feel good about so that. So diplomatic. I love it. You're, you're on the right track with that. You might, uh, you might be. Let me correct you. Uh, <laughs> yes, but no. <laughs> right. Now, moving on to the outside of the barrel. So we have we have and I, going back to the table here. We have Big thick barrel. I mean, this thing right here is a sight to behold in front of me. I mean, it's it, it's as long as the table is wide. For those of you not watching right now, it's a big old is a stainless yep. barrel. Four sixteen. What does that thing weigh? Um, well, interesting. You should ask. So the only reason I grabbed this out of the barrel drawer this morning was because <laughs> it had drawer barrels. Barrel drawer. I got it, socks. It, it has some uh, some fresh cut fluting on it. I had to send it back to the manufacturer because. Uh, for ELR, they changed the the weight limits for the light class, mm-hmm. and this ended up being a pound overweight. So I said, "Hey, can you can you uh, cut some cut some weight out of this thing and and flute it for me?" So well, it looks cool now. Well, it, yeah, and that's we'll get into like <laughs> what does fluting offer? Uh, it looks cool is like the main thing it offers. But in my case, I needed to shed weight, and I couldn't get rid of any other weight on the rifle. So. They um they took three pounds out of this thing. You're kidding me! No, oh this is my gosh. this is worth three pounds. And it was was it pre, was it previously fluted at all? No, it not, wasn't at all. Okay. No, not at all. Well, everybody knows when your rifle weighs fifty pounds. Or no, I'm sorry, fifty one pounds. I mean, geez, take a pound out of that thing, man. I mean, yeah, so that was worth yeah. it from that from that perspective. Whatever weight that is, was just decreasing the weight. Um, that is that is crazy. I can't believe three pounds. But I guess when you look at it, I mean, how long is this barrel? That one's 34, I 34 think. inches, yeah. and so this section here is about, I mean, 70% of the length, and you have these big scallops going out all the way around the barrel. And Yeah. I guess I could see that adding up. 
For yeah. sure. Let's um, just take a second and bust a couple myths about fluting while we're on it. Sure. People say you add fluting, you're going to have a stiffer barrel, and that's this is not true. They're kind of getting it almost like an angle iron type thing, right? So it's harder for a barrel to bend against the straight up and down portions of it rather than it would be. Yeah. So that's using geometry as like an I-beam or a stiffener uh, L-beam, yeah. something like that. But that's, you know, for the same amount of steel, you can increase rigidity through geometry. You can't take a piece of steel, no matter uh, what its size and shape, remove material and end up with something stiffer than what you started with. Okay. What you can do is you can say, I've got three pounds to spend on this barrel because I want to end up with the sheep rifle that, and that's you know seven pounds with glass. I've got three pounds that I can afford to make a barrel out of. What's the stiffest barrel I can make out of three pounds is a fluted barrel. Okay. Does that make sense? You're going to end up Wait, with a what? bigger a bigger outside diameter with a fluted barrel for the same amount of weight that you that you compared with a non-fluted oh. barrel. So okay. so you you get a stiffer barrel by getting a a more I'm just going to use the word I'm sorry everybody. fatter barrel girthy yeah fatter barrel yep and you get a fatter barrel while still maintaining the lightness of maybe a thinner barrel by going fluted. Yeah. So now oh. you, you're you judging so it, apples to apples on a weight basis. Yes. Does it yes. M- maintain... Now I get the three pounds thing. I thought we were getting British here for a second. <laughs> it's like three pounds <laughs> for a barrel. I mean, I know it's like six bucks, but How still. many quid is that? Um, yeah. <laughs> do you get the exact um, same rigidity of the, uh, you know, that no. I guess that outside diameter? So, no. but it's just not as... It's still an improvement, though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you can increase the rigidity of any cylinder by, you know, increasing its its outer diameter um, per weight on a weight basis. But this right here, when when I got this barrel back after it was fluted, it was instantly less rigid than it was. I was when just it gonna was say, unfluted. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you have to then tune it differently, like? Like tune your just got it back. Haven't shot it yet, so okay, that's I'm gonna. Fair. S- that's it's going to be interesting because I'm going to see. Well, did point of impact change or now with this is a cut rifled barrel, so uh, theoretically it didn't have any internal stress inside. Okay, right. So when they removed that material, it wasn't letting that internal. There was no internal stress oh, to, to to make a deviation. Okay. So I think it's going to have the same point of impact. I think it should have the same uh, level of precision. Mm-hmm. So now, what's then the importance about stiffness then when we talk about stiff barrels? Because we, I mean, you go into talking about big bowl barrels, skinny little tiny barrels, and then you have this is a carbon fiber barrel, which I know has been sort of the uh, the prom king of barrels, if you will, lately. And because they talk about how stiff carbon fiber is, what is the stiffness actually doing? What the heck? That carbon fiber has yeah. holes cut in That's it. Oh, weird, it's got holes cut in it, and it has a stainless barrel inside of it. Yeah, right? my yeah. lord. Well, that's so that's um, stiffness is a way of, you know, we talked about barrel vibration mm-hmm. um, in the last one. So, stiffness is a way of decreasing the amplitude of that waveform, of that vibration. Uh, and correspondingly, you're going to increase the frequency. So, your barrel, to in layman's terms, your, your barrel is going to move less mm-hmm. and be a little bit more consistent in terms of how it moves with variances in your ammo or your your uh, grip firmness or other things that can influence how the barrel might move. When you say grip firmness, you're just talking about how tight you're gripping the gun can yeah. influence? Yep, yep. So you're part of the system. You know, the rifle's part of the system. But, yeah, you can influence how your barrel moves by gun handling, 
you know, whether you have your your stock um, pinned hard up against a tree trunk, you know, as you're taking a shot out in the field yeah. okay. versus sure. something softer. That makes sense. So people have wanted to get stiffer barrels so that they can sort of mitigate the movement or lessen the movement of the barrel itself. Now, if you subscribe to the theory as I do where, you know, if you understand how the barrel moves and you can plan for it moving, i.e., um, work with it in terms of I want it to be moving in such a way every time the bullet is released, mm-hmm. then stiffness isn't such a big deal. In fact, you could argue that you might want it less stiff because you'd be be- dealing with bigger amplitudes, bigger waveforms. predict and work with. That are slower. slower. All of a sudden, your frequency goes down. And so now you're dealing with these big swings in your muzzle that are slower and easier to deterministically define. Yeah. Like on those reaction games, you know, where you're supposed to hit the button when the light turns on. Like if the light was flickering, like it's hard to, to hit. To try and find a spot between that yes. light. Yeah, it's hard to hit it. Timing. But if the if the light stayed on for longer periods of time, it's easier to hit You'd get that. it right I imagine time. it's easier to then predict what's happening if the barrel isn't like, you know. It's, right. But right. is the only way to work with it to uh, like you, we've talked about tuning devices yeah. before. Yeah. So like on maybe a hunting rifle, I'm not going to have a tuning device. Well, unless you've got you know the the old Browning Boss system. Browning Boss, or, yeah. I've got uh, that donut thing. Is that what the boss is? No, that's a that's a Sims vibration laboratory. Like uh, makes your rifle look really cool. Oh, dude, it's hard. I it's know. tough. <laughs> it's, I don't even want to tell you Jagged what my dad called. Pill. I can't tell you what my dad called it. Yeah. Um. Yeah, dude. Like it helped, but I don't feel good about myself. That's all right, Mark. Now, there's guys that are that are experimenting right now with ways to decrease barrel stiffness in very specific ways. Like I know a guy who's actually shaving off steel way back at the breech to create a weaker point back at the at back sure. at the action to promote a little bit of bending. You say sure, like that makes sense. Do you it actually, did, it actually did that? make sense. Really? Yes. Yeah. Because you're. Creating a hinge point, kind of. Yeah. Jim, sometimes things make sense, I know, okay? and sometimes you surprise me. He gets it. <laughs> um, how would you, for example, let's say, how would you tune a barrel like this? When you brought in your F-Class gun, it had that unique... I should have brought that in, yeah. It, it had that unique thing on the end of the barrel that you could twist, and you could essentially influence... It was like a barrel tuning much, fork. Yeah, how much weight was hanging out, yeah. where it was hanging out. But with this, you just have... I mean, it's just a barrel with a muzzle device on the end of it. How would you tune this? So instead, your your um, independent variable that you're working with is your ammo. So this oh, this can't change. Tune. You tune your ammo so that it's arriving at the muzzle when you want it to. Yeah. Versus pick any load that that gets you the velocity that you want and tune the barrel oh. to make sure the barrel is where you want it when that ammunition happens to leave. Okay. Okay. What do you think about this? Uh, you have this carbon one over here now. Yeah, do so you use that one still? Like you still, like well, I guess. I, so now I'm wondering why why'd you get a carbon one? Well, this one's super interesting. It is, and that's why I actually borrowed this from Larry downstairs. He he fits some barrels in his free time, and this is one that he had that he was telling me about the other day. And I said, "Bring it in. This is this is pretty interesting." Wisconsin because people fit barrels in their free time, brew beer in their free yeah. time. We're very <laughs> weird people. The winter brings the weird out in us. So this is a little shop in like Delavan, Wisconsin. You know, they're they're everywhere. And the neat thing about this one is. 
it's a composite barrel. Composite just means it's made out of more than one material. Okay. Um, but it's pre-tensioning the uh, stainless liner on the inside by using the carbon fiber, uh, which is very strong in compression, as a compression member. So you notice it just looks like it's threaded for a break or a, or a suppressor. Right. Yeah. Five-eighths thread. Yeah. Well, look at there's no thread relief when you look at the when you look at the shoulder down there. It just disappears into nothing, mm-hmm. and you oh, see it these keeps going. Yeah, you see these radial holes here in the end. Yeah, yeah. Well, this isn't what you think it is. This is actually a nut. It's not part of the barrel proper. It's a separate piece. That's a nut that takes a special spanner wrench, I assume, and you can basically tighten this down on these threads. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, what you're doing is, and some people create a little bit of a temperature delta so that they can take advantage of the coefficient of thermal expansion between the two materials to help promote the compression and, and uh, tension. Um, We're going to have to listen back to that one and yeah. bring out a dictionary. But whether you do that or not... <laughs> I think what's made let's, up. Yeah. <laughs> it sounded legit, though, didn't it? <laughs> it did. It sounded awesome. That's, that's all that matters. You can compress this outer carbon fiber sleeve. Uh-huh. And when you do that, you're just like any threaded fastener. When you torque a, like a screw, mm-hmm. you're putting it in tension. You're stretching it. You're stretching and so it. it's yep. compressing it this way. The, the carbon, carbon fiber. The carbon, just the but carbon that, fiber. That makes the barrel stretch. Bingo. That's your, that's your equal and opposite reaction. And that's how you get rigidity? That's how you get straightness. Oh. And oh, yeah, because when things get pulled, they straighten out. They straighten out. Yeah, we already touched on that. So it does a couple things for you. It straightens your bore, and I would say that it does contribute to rigidity as well because now you know, you've got this pre-stressed composite assembly, and a lot of things when, they're, when you induce a stress in, in them, they get a little bit more rigid, a yeah. little bit uh, stronger. And that's what's going on here, but it takes it at an, another level where it's hard to see, but the the stainless on the inside is actually fluted. Yeah, it is. And that's to obviously reduce weight like we talked about, okay. but increase some surface area. Oh, for be- cooling. Yes. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, they got a, a new carbon fiber barrel where it's one of those manufacturing techniques where they just wrap the carbon fiber on the steel part of the barrel, mm-hmm. like a mm-hmm. mandrel? Mm-hmm. And maybe they shot a lot or sustained a rate of fire that was that was pretty healthy for a while, and they actually heat affected that carbon fiber. Sometimes you hear about the carbon fiber rotating or, like it or becoming spins. loose. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is this is sort of debunking the myth that carbon fiber is um, it doesn't heat up as much, or carbon fiber barrels don't don't get hot. What's what's actually happening is they're they don't feel hot to the touch because they're an insulator. Yeah, they're just trapping. That's what I was gonna say. Like I've heard, I've heard both arguments. People say like, "Oh no, they yeah, they uh, dissipate heat," and I've yeah. heard other people say it's an insulator. And I'm like, "Well, yeah. Yeah. which one?" Well, it's the latter. I mean, that's the truth of it. Um, when you cut through hmm. all the marketing and everything, it's that's actually what's happening. There's no two ways around it. But this is allowing cooling via convection because you can tell. There's an air gap all the way around between that carbon fiber and it's the steel. It. Yeah, the it's not even touching. It's yeah, the steel isn't even touching the carbon fiber. The I didn't carbon even, fibers. I didn't want to bring it up because I didn't want to sound stupid, but I was like, 
I'm like, it's not even touching the barrel. It's literally like, how just is it held affecting the barrel if it's not touching the it's barrel? It's literally held in place by, by tension. Yeah, just got like two rings of contact, one there and one there, and carbon fiber happens to be pretty strong. If the ATF came by and it didn't have these slits in the side of the carbon fiber, they think it was integrally suppressed almost. That's kind of <laughs> yeah, what maybe. it reminds me of, how sure. it looks. Yep. So this sort of allows you to have a carbon fiber barrel while not you know, using that carbon fiber unintentionally as an insulator, trapping heat inside and, you know, prematurely wearing out your barrel because it's getting too hot. That's unique. And and in this case, stress is being used for good in that you're maintaining the stress yep. while the while the rifle is shooting. The 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 bad sort of version of stress that you were discussing earlier with rifling is when Stress is there, and then you start to take things away, and the stress has to, it re- then relieves itself in a way that would demote accuracy. Yeah, it starts to assume a shape that isn't straight. Sometimes that happens when you have internal stress in a barrel and you start shooting it. You ever see like a rifle that has a free-floated barrel? It's not touching the stock, but your point of impact starts to shift in a very... Mm-hmm. predictable mm-hmm. Okay, right. line. Yep. I've that's, definitely seen that. Yeah, so that's the same thing where there's internal stress in your barrel, and based on the fact that you're heating that material up, some of that stress is starting to come into play. And let's say um, you know, there's more stress in, on one side of the barrel than the other. Well, how do you think it's going to bend? It's going to, you know... It's mm-hmm. going to be acted on by those stresses and, and bend in a specific way. That is unique. Getting that is back, very interesting. Getting back to the fluted barrel, that's one thing uh, during my, uh, my pre-podcast reading. They're saying, hey, if you're going to flute a barrel, you better do it very, I guess, you know, accurately or with a high level of precision so you don't impart, you know, maybe removing more material on one side yeah. versus another side. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also, like, there's more than one way to cut a hemispherical trough in a piece of steel, right? You can use like uh, a rotary cutter that's sort of like a slitting saw that's cutting like this, or you can use like a ball end mill mm-hmm. that's rotating the other way. Well, as a general rule, the the smaller amount of steel you can take with each cutting surface mm-hmm. the and the sharper the tool, the less stress you're going to be imparting into the material, into the base okay. material. So... That would mean you'd want to use like a, a, a you know four fluted multi fluted ball end mill, and take your time making this cut, traversing mm-hmm. all the way down, rather than really hogging it out with like one of those uh, big slotting tools. Yeah, um, it's a little bit. Every time you try to cut too much material, you're displacing some material, cutting some material. Right. You don't want to really displace any material. You don't want to put pressure on the workpiece because that's right. what induces the stress. I'm hmm. picturing like. Uh, split a log with an axe, right? Like I could use an axe, which will get me to where I want to be or which is going to impart like a ton of force, displace things, or I could use a chisel and yeah. get to the same point eventually. Yeah, but, but a just bit more cleanly. Just a lot less force. You're really not, you know, imparting anything. You're just, just chipping away. Yep. But if you, the goal is to make artisan firewood, um, the chisel might be exactly right up your alley. Is artisanal firewood a, th- a thing, or is that just a really clever <laughs> it is now. last minute? It's a thing. <laughs> that a very, very interesting. Come to Ian's artisanal firewood <laughs> warehouse. <laughs> we we got to talk about, there's a couple other unique barrels on here. Yeah. One of which is hexagonal. Octagonal. Um, or, I'm sorry, octagonal. He- yep. Octagonal barrel. And... Uh, the only reason I threw this in here was to touch on a little bit of history. Yeah, um, this is kind of like a classic. It's also this cool gloss finish. Is that hammer forged? So this one is not, but 
they were. This one is trying to replicate something that was hammer forged back in the day. Okay. So a lot of gun builders. So this is a modern, relatively modern build um, replication of an iconic single shot rifle, the low wall. Mm-hmm. So I took this off and rebuilt it in something else. So I just have this in the drawer. But um, the, <laughs> before the drawer. It, Ian's drawer must be an interesting. Place. It's a heavy. It's a heavy drawer. And, you know, it's like <laughs> these long, long ones. So back in the day, these gun builders, some of them didn't have lathes, but they had files, and all these barrels were hand forged. So you can imagine taking like a lump of steel and actually hammering it. Oh my gosh, it's like the old sword builders or something. Yeah. So so it's easier to hammer something. It's hard to hammer something that's round, actually. It's sure. a lot easier to hammer something that's got eight sides to it. Yeah. And Makes then you sense. can draw file it to its final shape and you're in business. There were no steel mills back in the day. So a modern manufacturer now, they take a they, they call up a steel mill and they'll order these twelve foot bars of four sixteen R stainless and they'll get tons of them. Well, you couldn't do that back in the day, so you actually had to hand forge these barrels. And that's why they were octagonal. You could, I think you could pony up and spend some more money to make it round, which is kind of funny because now this is more expensive to make than yeah, a round barrel. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's that's pretty cool. Every time I see one of those, they just it just has that unique, elegant look to it. But but talk about unique and elegant. We've saved We've saved this one here for the uh, latter portion of the podcast, but this is a double barrel rifle. What do you call it? Yeah, it's a it's a double rifle. Double rifle. And and the cartridge is this one is actually thirty thirty Winchester. That's awesome. That is so unbelievably cool. And and when you first pulled it out, I remember thinking to myself, oh that's cool. He's got like a double barrel twenty two because these barrels are like incredibly like incredibly thin. Yeah. What's yeah. the what's the story behind this rifle that this came off of and the barrels and the chambering and everything? What's the story here? Well, I always wanted a double rifle for the collection. I just think there's something kind of neat about it. You can play make-believe. I'll probably never hunt in Africa, but you can play make-believe and, you know, pretend you're on a safari after some Wisconsin whitetails or <laughs> yeah. uh, charging uh, rabbit or, or whatever that you need to, <laughs> that you need a stopper for. Um, so I wanted a, a double rifle, but let's be honest, a 450 Nitro, how, how often am I going to go out and shoot that just for fun? You know, it's, right, yeah. it's not going to be all that fun to shoot. I don't know if anybody ever even shoots that for fun. Yeah, ever. so so <laughs> this is, uh, a, it's built on a little 28-gauge side-by-side action coming from France, um, a company named uh, Chapuis. And they said, you know what, let's make this double rifle for the American whitetail hunter that kind of wants a double rifle. That's and so cool. Yeah, I think they offered it in 30-30 and um, maybe like 30-40 Craig or something like that, a couple of 30 That's calibers. That's cool. And so it comes with a set of 28-gauge barrels as, a, as like a set. But the reason I grabbed it was because here's an example of, once again, a barrel, but compared to these almost expendable, like, consumable barrels that we go through on target rifles. We screw it off, screw another one on for the next season. This is on the other end of the spectrum where a lot of handwork, hand-fitting went into this. Uh, A couple features. The reason why the barrels are so thin, not only to keep the overall weight down and and manageable, Mm -hmm. is during the regulation process, regulation is, like, where they, they try to make the two barrels shoot to the same point of impact. That's what I was going to say. You're dealing with two Two steels that uh, somehow need to be pointed to the exact 
same so, spot. I'm not going to point this right at you guys, but you see in the front this little like wedge that's protruding out the front yes. between the muzzles? Yeah, it's not centered. Yeah, that's one of the tools that they use during the regulation process. By pushing that wedge in and pulling it out, they can converge and diverge these barrels You're as they're me. no, as they're shooting them. So this particular set of barrels was regulated with a specific ammo, and that's the Hornady Lever Evolution, that real nice uh, mm-hmm. pointed uh, yeah. gun. Yeah. And they are actually test firing with these barrels in the white, separated, until it shoots exactly the way they want it to. And then they go in and silver solder the top rib and the bottom rib, and they have to check it as they go to make sure they haven't shifted one barrel or the other, that they're right. both still shooting. They're imparting heat with yep. soldering, wow. which can... They silver solder in a sling swivel stud, a forearm hook, uh, the lugs that actually uh, create the lockup for the breech back at the... The ejectors, this quarter rib, they have to solder on. And they even do some, this has some really, like, cool design in the oh, top. Oh, yeah, the matting of that. Yeah. And then um, placing the, the iron sights so that they shoot to point of impact or right in the middle of those two shots from, from each barrel. And then even some quick detach um, scope mounts. I mean, this is just, like, everything about this screams fine, handcrafted, like, I mean, I don't want to say a machine can't make this because a machine probably can, but it also can't get across how, I don't know, if you brought this in and it was like, oh, yeah, this is from a, a place where a machine made it, it wouldn't be as cool. I mean, it'd be kind of yeah. like, wow, that's really unique, but it wouldn't be nearly as cool. And the fact is machines can't make this because it actually does take that hand process of fitting the barrels together and right. making really? them. Yep, okay. a machine can't replicate that. That's amazing. So that's why there's a lot of labor. Suck it, machines. Like yeah. yeah. We still have a reason to be in charge. Yep. They so, haven't taken over completely. It's not iRobot yet. Yeah. Can you talk about real quick too these scope mounts cuz you have this Razer LH here. Yeah, so that's the one I picked for for this double rifle. You were talking about uh very fitting optic for the for the rifle. Uh you were talking about just how these uh what what do they call swivel scope mounts? Yeah, some people call them pivot mounts, some people call them uh swivel mounts, but the theory is you want to be able to shoot with irons or a scope and you want to make that decision in the field depending on, you know, um <laughs> what what you're doing. Can you imagine being on like a like a mule deer hunt and being like, do I want to go and stalk that one with my irons or should I throw a scope on? I mean, like people, people nowadays who aren't aware of these kinds of things would have an aneurysm just thinking about yeah, it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Ah, 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 not zeroed in. Ah, like, Detached, right. reattached. So there's a lot of precision that goes into these mounts as well. And I actually shot a group with this rifle uh, with the scope mounted, and then I shot a group taking the scope off and putting it back on mm-hmm. in between shots. Same number oh, of yeah. rounds. Okay. Same size group. Wow. Yeah, so I have a lot of confidence in it now. Jeez, yeah. But basically, it's got one pivot dovetail in the front, and then one cam, oh, and then it... cam locking dovetail in the back, and it's it's on and it's that rigid. That is so cool. Yeah. So you could take it on and off as many times as you want. I love everything about this. I, yeah. And like you said, there's just like this romantic quality. Like, yeah, I don't, I, I don't need a a double. Well, I shouldn't say I don't need a double rifle for Africa. Mark, but, you need a double. Oh, for Africa. Well, but I do need a need double one. rifle for charging whitetail does. Yeah, yeah. It's it's fun to shoot too because you've got the double triggers, and uh, you know you've got you got two chances, quick follow up shot. Um, yeah, I know. Sometimes I remember when I was looking at some shotguns, I ended up with my Browning Synergy, and that's mm-hmm. an over under. But I remember talking 
was talking to Ryan Muckinhern because he's a big purveyor of uh, side by sides and stuff like that. And I remember asking him, like, why in the heck are these side by sides and over unders? Like, why are they so expensive? I was like, they're so simple. They don't have the inertia driven, whatever you might call it. Yeah. You know, they don't have all that stuff. They're just shotguns, you know? And, he, and then he proceeded to explain, and I, it hadn't occurred to me that two barrels, there's two chances for things to be awry if they're not done exactly right and aligned properly and put together in such a way that they're not going to, you know, whatever. I mean, it actually is, when you really think about it, a really difficult process. There's a lot more going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And then this final one I grabbed just because it, it's got this weird block on the end of it. Yeah. I was wondering what this is. It almost looks like a, like a barn made out of aluminum that you've, yeah, <laughs> slid down the barrel or something. I don't know. It's it's yep. an interesting thing. It's a big block. Yeah. So that? I so I made this. It's called a, a barrel block. Go figure. And uh, it's seventy seventy five T six aluminum that is started out as one block. Put a little uh, interruption here with these with these clamping screws. And then if you look real close, you can see the aluminum isn't touching the steel. There's like a little liner that okay. separates the two in there kind of free okay, floating s yeah. well that's that's a thermal isolation barrier so uh, as the this is the chamber end of the barrel and give a dictionary out again is it as it gets hot you don't want that heat transferring to this aluminum because the aluminum is actually your mounting surface and your bedding surface to the stock so if you look on the bottom you've got two quarter 28 holes like you would find on the bottom of an action. Mm-hmm. You've heard of free floating barrels. Mm-hmm. This has now a free floating barrel and a free floating action. Oh. So the action would be screwed on here and it's not touching the stock at all. It's just going along for the ride. The only place that this attaches to the stock is through the block here. Wow. Yeah, so this is you talk about tuning forks. You shoot this thing and it feels and sounds like a tuning fork because now you have these two steel masses that have their own characteristic frequency that are that are vibrating back and forth when you shoot. Oh my gosh, that is super cool. Yeah, it's 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 pretty neat. I got the idea from you see some of these big rail guns and, and uh, heavy bench rest rifles that that have this methodology and they're supposed to be the most accurate rifles in the world. So I wanted to see if I could do the same thing but put it in a little tiny block in a hunting rifle. And um, see how it worked. And did you notice an increase wait, in wait, accuracy? Wait, wait. Did you make this? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just as uh, just <laughs> as an experiment. That's amazing. But yeah, it, it does work, and it's it's pretty cool because it takes away all the sensitivity that you have. You know, like how much torque should I use on my action screws back here and everything? Mm-hmm. You have you have less cantilevered um, weight out front. So this is a thirty-two inch barrel, mm-hmm. but effectively you get to take six inches off. So, you know, now it's a 26-inch barrel. Oh, is that because... Wait, I'm trying to actually figure out how that works. Well, um, you get the velocity of a 30-inch barrel, but you... It's borderline bullpup-esque. Yeah, it's it's sort of like uh, you're taking taking that relationship between the stock and the barrel, and you're you're just sort of changing where it happens. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. And if you want to know what a bullpup is... Check out yeah, our podcast. and talk on that. On bullpups. Um, wow. Holy smokes. Mine coming up with so many things, but we're already you know, at an hour 12. Yep. Barrels, though, are phenomenally interesting. Oh, that was what I was going to say, though. Ian is going to have Ian's artisanal firewood and free-floating 
barrels and actions. For the discriminating wood burner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which there, I am. There are a lot of those out there. Man, these have been some very interesting ones to discuss. And I, I did also find it, I, I, I appreciated the way that you put it in such that uh, you discussed the fact that some barrels that people have are almost these, uh, are like shavers, if you will, disposable, and you shoot through them, you use them while they work, and then when they're done, you take them off and you put on a new one. Now, not all of us are doing that very often. You're obviously in competition. You shoot a lot more than the average Joe, but that is kind of the way that you can look at it, and then some of these ones are these really nice handcrafted ones. And I mean, to go and get a new one of these would be quite a process and somebody would literally have to go in and hand make it you're not you're never going to replicate this exact right. double barrel yep. setup yep. well and like we talk about so oftentimes cool. it comes back to application right it, it you're does just absolutely not, you're just not going to shoot that gun exactly as much as you might yeah. a mm-hmm. different one so yep. absolutely and then there's people out there you know like we've seen with their ultralight mountain guns and they have these super thin barrels and you know they know that that gun isn't hopefully going to be used for, you know, like, boom, 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 boom. It's hopefully mm-hmm. one shot. and, and But it'll see miles and miles of trekking, so it's important yeah. to have it light. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. Did we miss anything, Ian? Well, probably, anything? yeah, we missed a bunch of stuff. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's barrels. How much can you talk about barrels? They're, they're Apparently gone. a lot. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's, and there's some and different possibly barrels. a little bit more. Yeah. Probably a little bit more, indeed. Good uh, starter. As always, though, we'll we'll leave it on this, and if anybody has any additional questions for Ian about these particular barrels on the table or anything else that we chatted about, definitely hit us up. Uh, Instagram is the easiest way, at Vortex Nation Podcast. And yeah, we got to get some pictures of these. So for those of you listening, if you don't head over to YouTube, mm-hmm. definitely head over to the Instagram page. We're going to get some some pictures of each one of these individually because they are, they are unique. Cool. Fascinating. Thank As you, Ian. Thank you, guys, and congratulations on the 100th uh, episode. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks. Sweet. Well, it's fun. We'll catch everybody next time. Happy hunting and shooting out there, and uh, why don't you go in your safe and tell us what kind of barrels you're rocking on your rifles. We'd love to hear it. All right. Bye. 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 All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field. Or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.